welcome to our Friday Five Live podcast hosted by Meg Foster. Meg has spent 20 years in higher education focused on student success initiatives and working in areas such as orientation, faculty development, online learning, student leadership, and first-year initiatives. So welcome everyone to um, our Friday Five Live for the month of May, very appropriate. We're um, talking about college student mental health today and um, always, I think it's been you know, a, a topic of discussion now for uh, many years in our podcast, but especially appropriate in May, which is Mental Health um, Awareness Month. And um, I do wanna just remind folks that Friday Five Live um, after today does become a podcast, which you can listen to um, on any of your podcasting platforms. And we've got lots of information um, in our slides, which we'll get out to you um, today on how you can share this resource. I like to think that Friday Five Live um, pairs nicely with a good cup of tea or a walk, uh, maybe with a colleague as well. So um, we are so thrilled today um, to have with us um, Dave Danino, who is the Director Emeritus of Counseling Services at Southern Connecticut State University. Um, he's been in that environment for a couple of decades at least or more um, and teaching graduate students for over 25 years, currently serving as an adjunct faculty member um, and also providing con consulting services and presenting at con conferences across the country um, and has done a lot of work um, with organizations like the Red Cross, um, also um, with the National Association for Behavioral Intervention and Threat Assessment, which is um, just such incredible, incredibly important work um, that you've done, Dave, and we really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today and learn from you. Great. Glad to be here. Thanks for the intro. Uh, anything you want to make sure you add to the intro that I... Well, just, uh, yeah, just a real uh, a quick note. Uh, it's about a 40-year career in higher education, uh, most of that on a campus, and then a lot of consulting over the last 10 years or so nationally uh, with suicide prevention, uh, threat teams, bit teams, care teams, those kinds of things. I did work with Nibita for a period of time. Um, when I was president of that organization, we wrote the the standards for the, for the behavioral intervention teams and care teams, which was really great. Uh, I moved over a little bit to what's called D-PREP now, and I'll talk about that in a moment okay. when we talk about some, some trainings and some things that are going on nationally. Wonderful. Yes. And I do, um, for our listening audience today, please, if you have uh, questions for Dave that I didn't pose, um, please, please put those in the chat and I'll make sure we weave those um, into our conversation today. You know, as always, I kind of come to this with um, some questions um, prepared, but we also love um, our audience interaction as well. Um, so you mentioned that your background includes these years of serving as um, a director of counseling services. And wondering as we think about, you know, kind of where we are with, with mental health and college environments, any trends or changes um, that you're seeing in um, the health needs of our students who are enrolling now in college. And I'm, I'm, I'm having a lot of conversations about sort of this, is there a micro generation, right? This COVID kind of generation, so to speak. So mm -hmm. interested in those thoughts as well. Yeah, we'll see what happens. I mean, time will tell about that, but you know, uh, we all know the last three years has been very difficult for everybody nationally for students that were going to college and leaving the high school experience, having had two years of maybe non-attendance or part-time mm -hmm. attendance and not having the social connections and that, that classroom integration. 
it's a difficult transition uh, right now for those students, but certainly it affected all current college students as well. Um, the, the pandemic just, and we know this generally, is just uh, exacerbated everything that everybody does. It changed our focus and our lens on life. Uh, it affected mental health. It affected uh, financial uh, settings for people, jobs, um, enrolling, not enrolling into to college, uh, those kinds of things. So, um, you know, the, the challenges as I see them are, and I, I was fortunate to have almost a four decade career starting in the 70s and watch the generations move through from X to Y to millennials, et cetera. And growth and development is important for each generation. This one, this generation got hit very hard. Um, as I said, it just exacerbated everything that that, that was happening. So, you know, students used to worry about co coursework, relationships, getting through college. Let's say the normal things that happen to us uh, with with regular bouts of mental health issues that that affect everybody generally. But uh, the economic strain, uh, you know, dealing with social injustice in the United States now, um, you know, uh, dealing with the loss that they had from COVID if they lost family members. And, you know, that really led to what we all know is a, a social disconnect, if you will. Uh, we had less in-person, one-to-one uh, interactions uh, uh, facing front, if you will. And we turned to, what, Zoom, uh, laptops, um, and it just uh, the explosion of using our digital devices uh, was huge. So, yeah, there are some things that are happening. Um, and I think you would see if you looked, and uh, a lot of you, most of you are working at colleges and universities, what we see in the, in a trend is that uh, we see depression has gone up. We see anxiety has gone up. That has always been the number one and the number two concern for college students mm -hmm. um, in any like AUCCD, which is the University Counseling Center Directors Group, um, or data out of Penn State would tell you anxiety and depression, number one, number two, and they fade in and out. But they're pretty much they're up there. That has skyrocketed uh, because uh, the pandemic pandemic had a, a, an effect on on, on all of us. Um, partly, what what that has done, and, and if any of you work in enrollment or enrollment management, we lost students uh, in terms of dropping out because they didn't have the uh, the ability to connect uh, in terms of having a laptop at home, being able to get online, coming frustrated not being able to accommodate that particular type of learning style as professors were adjusting to that kind of teaching modality, if you will. Uh, and, and another thing that, that I, I just I have to toss out here that's really important, we have to go back, if we're working at colleges, we've got to look at what happened prior to the four years that, that students were in um, the process of applying and getting into colleges. That group of students, as I said before, was uh, very heavily impacted. So do we have kind of a new formulation of students coming into college and what they will be while they're in college and how they recover from this, this really terrible time we've been through? You know, time will tell. But we do know that anxiety, depression are up. We know, certainly, generally speaking, and we'll talk more about this in a moment, that uh, suicide rates uh, have increased across uh, the populations. So, uh, so you know, that, that part about high stress and loneliness, um, I, 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 I had that fortunate opportunity, like I said, to work 40 years in higher ed. I, it is um, on steroids now for students, the high stress the disconnect, the reconnecting, uh, very difficult times. Um, so, 
So we have to we have to manage that, right? Uh, whatever your job is at the school, we have to we have to nurture, we have to manage, we have to help people work their way through that. While don't forget, we're working our way back into what we uh, what we would consider the old days, which are three or four years ago. But that'll never be the same. Things have changed. The lens has changed in how we view things, uh, and that's going to make for a new generation of people as they acclimate to to life. Uh. The lens really has changed. And I love that you acknowledge that because I feel like sometimes I talk to folks who are like, well, let's just get back to normal. Well, no. you know, I think there's a lot of a, a lot of good research, a lot of uh, very wise people counseling that that that's that there's just that's not going to happen. Right. Um, that there's a new normal. Um, we, we need to acclimate to that. And, and that's quite true. And, you know, and we know this as adults, the new normal is coming along more regularly now than it used to. We uh, used to be able to look at generational changes, I think, in terms of decades. Now it's in terms of years. And yeah. it's rapid. That's a really, and that's important because then that's so much more that we're called on to be informed about and be prepared for as professionals. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm sure that also adds to, right, these challenges that our students are facing as well. No question. question. And even the people listening in today, you could identify, if I asked three items that are different now uh, than three years ago, you could come up with three items in a heartbeat about attention span, uh, connectedness, um, getting projects completed, feeling this kind of depressive feel that that a lot of people have developed and are not climbing out of the cave, so to speak, mm-hmm. of what COVID did to us and what the pandemic did to us. And that's people who had, uh, you know, a, a, a pretty solid relationship in life, if you will, people who had pre-existing issues in terms of mental health, physical conditions, et cetera, things got even worse because they're tough to manage to begin with and then you lump on this whole kind of two and a half year uh, pandemic and it gets more difficult. So those are the students we're looking out for and we need to to uh, support and get through. And you know perhaps they're slightly more needy or perhaps they need a little more attention. But that's what we're there for, particularly all the people that work in student affairs. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of let's see here last last month. Um, a month before last, I had Jessica Gifford on, who's doing a lot of work around uh, resiliency and connectedness. And, and we talked a lot about this concept of loneliness. And then and it, and then as as happens, as we've already discussed NPR, um, you know, clearly I spend a lot of time listening to it. There was um, our Surgeon General just last week was on NPR talking about the importance of addressing loneliness in our community and, and communities um, at all ages. Um, but Jessica's work particularly centers around um, college students and, and those sense of yeah. uh, connectedness and loneliness. And um, are you seeing that really as well in your work? And in, well, you know, in, in my con- yeah, I see it in my consulting work for sure. You know, and I, I'm, like other people, I spent way too much time in Zoom in the last two and a half years. I'm back into doing in-person trainings and consulting now. But yeah, I mean, uh, just generally, even the most healthiest healthiest person uh, that you could take in your life that had uh, good uh, mental health and had good physical health, 
everybody tipped a little bit during this uh, time of uh, two to three years because we were home, we were masking, there were different rules coming out. There were rules we believed in that people didn't believe in. Um, and it was a little bit of a scary time for a lot of folks. So that shift in, in becoming isolated and being at home had a, um, I, I think, a powerful impact. I do see today people are coming out of that cave, as I called it before, and right. seeing sunlight and getting back into being more social and more connected, which is really critical. It's so critical. So I'm going to jump us to question our second question, but would love, you know, feel free in our audience chat in if you have questions for Dave today. Um, it seems in reading your bio that a lot of your work is centered around, um, you know, suicide prevention training in particular. Um, mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm really interested to learn more about that. Um, such a pressing topic. And I'm, I'm proud of our public school system here that requires that in the schools, um, in middle school and high school. I think we, we need to help our students um, understand that this is a topic we need to discuss. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, could you share with us, you, you helped author this past training program, um, you know, kind of what is that? How can we learn more? Because um, I think this work is really, I've had so many conversations over the years with colleagues that, that this is, it's an intimidating conversation. And, you know, you may be in the audience and thinking, well, I'm I'm a librarian, right? Like, what can I bring to this um, to this really pressing topic? So. Right. And that's an excellent point. Every person can bring something to the table, no matter what walk of life you 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 are embarking upon. Um, and I'm glad you brought this this question up because clearly it's an important issue. Um, and I want to preface my comments by saying to all of you. Any program that you have at your campus is a good program. Do, just have something there. So whether you um, um, uh, the uh, the past program uh, and QPR are two different things. So I'll mention those in a moment. But any training that you can get, whether that's uh, Safe Talk, it could be uh, Mental Health First Aid, it could be uh, Assist, it could be QPR. Have something on your campus where you can train everybody, students, faculty, and staff to listen in on conversations and ask that difficult question, which is, are you thinking about dying by suicide? Um, so the important thing is to have a program. Now, the program that I wrote, and I, I don't think the BIDA offers it anymore. I have not checked their website, but I, I wrote a past program that was called Prevent Another Student Suicide. It was not dissimilar to other kinds of training that you get, which all of them kind of take a look at, uh, you know, when we do these trainings, what is the suicide data? What is the suicide data around college students, basic terms and understanding of risk factors, et cetera. But then we talk about those contributing factors like depression, anxiety, substance abuse, and those kinds of things that uh, hopelessness that contribute to a person that might think about dying by suicide. The important thing in all these programs, regardless of which one you use, is that uh, we, we train and get people to be more comfortable in, in uh, accepting a yes answer. Uh, firstly, in asking the question directly, are you thinking about killing yourself or are you thinking about suicide? Uh, but second to that, I think the fear, and I've done, I've trained hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people nationally. The fear is when the yes answers come, comes and I'm standing in front of the person, what do I do now? Does that really kind of freak me out? How do I respond to it? Do I give a great big bear hug and call the police? 
But being okay with a yes answer and how to navigate that yes answer with the person that just revealed something that's very, very serious in their life and trusted uh, that you would accept that yes and, and perhaps do something with it. So what do you do with yes? What do you do with a vague answer? How do you follow up? This is what the training was that we wrote about with the past program. Um, and then we talk about, um, you know, keeping the person safe, risk assessment, uh, and ultimately getting to the referral um, process. Now, kind of in a nutshell, that's the any program or any training you take would get you from A to C, which is you want to be there, you want to ask the question, you want to have some kind of an intervention, and then you want to have some kind of referral. Sure. So QPR, which is a very popular program nationally, and I've, I've trained in most of the suicide prevention programs. I chose QPR when I was a counseling center director because I found it to be um, I see that question about pass. We'll have to look that up on, uh, on the Nabito website and see if they're still carrying it. I wrote the program for them and I was teaching it. I'm not with them anymore, so I'm not sure it's there. But I can tell you this, I can give you information on how that worked. I can send that uh, to Meg and she can get it out to you guys and you can see what it looked like, okay? So whatever program you have, um, we wanna concentrate on, on having something taught on your campus. Uh, that's the important part. I settled on QPR, I was just about to say, because it's quick, efficient, it was ev it is evidence-based, and you can do training in an hour to 90 minutes. I, and for all of you listening in, if there are any, any professors on the call, it's hard to pin down professors for a eight hour training in like mental health first aid or a four hour training. I had to do this so I could get the campus permeated in understanding what suicide is, how to deal with the question and how to make a referral. So I chose QPR a lot of years ago. I'm, I go back 20 years with QPR probably and it's growing uh, greatly. So, it, you know, and I, I'm, this isn't a pitch for QPR that you should do it. You should take the program that would most benefit how you can train people and how you can get the word out on your campus. But I opened up with this. I said, do something. <laughs> Don't just sit silent and not have a program of, of this uh, sort on your campus. So PASS um, was uh, um, a, a, a three-hour training program, and it was meant to be RAs um, and maybe student affairs staff and other people outside of um, the faculty. Uh, faculty could attend, but we rarely got that kind of participation. We couldn't get it from university police because timing's everything. You know, we had to do it in an hour between shifts for the for 24 seven uh, police department, for example, all three shifts will get trained an hour early. So you wanna permeate the campus with what you do. That's the important part. So what, what you can find out information about though, if you wanna take a quick look, is I took the past program and uh, Brian Van Brunt, who was on with you uh, a week or two ago, mm -hmm. our colleagues were friends who were directors of counseling who served together nationally on national boards. Um, there's a, uh, Akin to uh, evaluating suicide risk, there is uh, something called a suicide uh, wayfinder on the uh, on the website that uh, with the company that Brian is with now, which is DPREP. You can look at that at the very least. Um, and and again, it's a rating scale. It's how do I approach this for a bit team or a care team? It's actually scaled. Uh, not uh, not dissimilar to a risk rubric, so that as you build up uh, the questions, the significance uh, uh, of a suicide taking place goes up and the intervention should be quicker, obviously. 
Um, so there's kind of a rating scale with that in a risk rubric. And, and, and again, not pitching it, but have something so that you can um, ascertain what's going on with the student. This is all prior to hopefully the person getting to a, a clinician that can, um, that can do a deeper dive and look at that risk factor that's centered around suicide. That's the important thing to get that referral made so we could determine is the person safe or not safe? Do we need to hospitalize or not hospitalize? And as an aside for you all, uh, just I'm telling you from a clinical perspective, getting the hospitalization is not uh, an easy thing and it's difficult uh, for the student, if the family's involved for them, for the ambulance ride, for the wait in the ED. So, uh, that's the last resort. If the person is critical and needs hospitalization, they're going to go. But probably based on my personal experience, I'd say 90% of the people who came in with suicidal ideation were able to manage their ideation and walked out the door. Now, you got to know for a clinician, anytime you do that assessment and somebody walks out the door, uh, you've done the best you can to determine that they, they are currently not suicidal. So the idea is to get to somebody who can actually put their finger on that and, and intervene. Um, so the second question is really about what kind of training do you have on your campus? How robust is it? Who do you reach? <coughs> Excuse me. And an important, an important part of that outreach is um, our student population. Uh, absolutely, if you have residence halls, the RAs, the hall directors, uh, student government, student athlete groups, uh, whomever you can get trained, because it's always been my methodology that I want to look for where the eyes and the ears of the community are mostly. And that generally for colleges in the classroom, professors in the residence halls, and in those participatory programs that students kind of um, um, participate in. So we want to train everybody because we can't have clinicians everywhere. We can't have deans of students everywhere. We can't have wellness centers everywhere. The, the population has to bring it into us, whatever that mental health need might be. That could be from suicide to somebody not adjusting properly, not getting out of bed for several days, not eating, not bathing, et cetera. But the eyes and ears of the community become, uh, become important. The other thing that's really critical, and I think this is a great change that I've seen, is that people are much more at ease in the last decade, most certainly in the last few years, of accessing um, counseling and mental health services. Uh, it's, it's. Uh, I, I think students talk about it more openly. I think adults talk about it more openly. It's not a uh, a hidden feature, if you will, anymore. So that's a good thing that people seek seek help, and that might actually segue us into our next question about nine eight eight, unless. Uh, there are some questions uh, or you want to add something to this, Meg? I, I guess I am curious. Nationally, are you seeing any trends um, with, uh, you know, particularly public higher ed systems, I'm thinking, requiring this kind of training for faculty, staff, students? And I'm just curious if there's any sort of attempt to, in state councils of higher ed to say, this is really important and, and we need to make sure this is woven into our campus cultures. Yeah, I think uh, I think you'll see probably a, a VPSA, a vice president, a, a dean, and certainly the counseling center, the wellness center, LBGTQ plus centers, those kinds of student supportive things. I think they lead the charge in bringing this to campus. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I really haven't encountered a campus that had zero yet. They had some sort of something going on. 
but formalized training, evidence-based training is important. Um, but I, I know that all of us that were connected to student affairs, we have that interest and we want to have these programs in place. Um, and we know, you know, uh, to kind of as an adjunct to that, you know, we look at dangerousness too, right? Because we're always concerned about safety. So we look at threat assessment regularly nowadays. I mean, that's changed tremendously in the Absolutely. last 10 years. So as we're assessing that, when you say the word threat, what does it mean to you? How broad is it? Does it or does it not include suicide, threat to self, threat to others, homicide? Um, so we're assessing and we're looking. So I think that that has grown and many many campuses have something. I used the key word before though, and I wanna lean on it, is how robust is the program? Sure. Did you initiate it and train everybody and then do less sessions in it? Is it ongoing? Do you have open enrollment um, one or two times a semester to come take a QPR training? Um, and I'll use the four of uh, the word, um, I'll use it uh, uh, affectionately. Do you force your way in uh, to um, teaching it or do you invite people in? By forcing, I mean, is like, you know, we can we can kind of get the RAs together. We can get student groups together. Uh, you certainly have to uh, massage sometimes getting faculty and staff in. And that's an important feature uh, to get everybody trained up. So I, I think everybody has their eyes on this, but doing it well is the question. Yeah. And, and you know, I think we've had so many conversations in our podcast over the last couple of years about um, sort of our, our responsibilities outside of those roles of I'm an RA, I work in the counseling center, I work in the LGBTQ center, that, that we all have this role to sort of be mental health care first responders and but that's intimidating for a lot of folks i mean that's i mean i you know i laugh and say affectionately i have 18 hours of grad level counseling and it was enough to make me realize that i really admire people who do that professionally and it was not my calling right mm -hmm. like <laughs> that was sure. um and and i think about so many of my colleagues who maybe don't have that kind of um even that sort of basic training and and feel really intimidated by this work. And so I think as you're saying, institutions kind of have this responsibility to have these, this training and that it needs to be robust. And, and there are lots of ways we can infiltrate, shall we say, yeah, um, uh, various <laughs> groups. Yeah. And yeah. Amy's asking a great question. Do we recommend training all students or only student leaders? I know what my gut says, but I'll be curious about your statement. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, two-tiered. Uh, all students is a stretch, but it's a great stretch. Mm -hmm. Student leaders first, because student leaders, um, they tend to connect to a lot of other students in their groups, clubs, organizations, et cetera. But I certainly uh, would encourage having uh, students trained in something to respond to a friend uh, who's in trouble. And, you know, you can capitalize on what happens in new students coming in um, to college, whatever happened in high school in terms of their peer, uh, their peer programs, peer counseling, peer assistance, whatever they called it. A lot of students come to campus with that and they're already knowledgeable. So, you know, it, it depends on the size of your campus too, but you can put those sessions out there as this is an open session for students, you know, six o'clock in this residence hall or in the whatever academic building. Of course, I always put there'll be pizza served. That's always helpful. Um, and get students in. Uh, so I would I would toss it out. I mean, the good thing is some, and I like this, you know, you can almost mandate student leaders to go. We never did that. 
but we encourage participation and going to their groups to do those trainings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we would have to roll that out every year, uh, at least because new student leaders come in. Right. And Amy's made the good follow-up point that students often feel more comfortable talking to other their peers, right? Good about point. their concerns. Yeah. Good point. And again, here's the eyes and the ears of the community, right? We've got professors, we've got residence hall people. Uh, but it peer-to-peer is huge. So any kind of peer facilitation you have in wellness centers or in other centers, that it's it's important to get those people um, at the forefront to do some some work and some training with this so it can be peer-to-peer. That's a sure, great sure. comment. Yeah. I've recently read some, you know, uh, research that's come out of peer-to-peer kind of counseling um, programs and, and seen a lot of real effectiveness with that being sort of a, a first touch point, right? That um, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And you know, when when uh, and we, you know, I do a lot of training. I did a lot of training with college students. You know, and there's still that that kind of heartfelt feeling, if you will, that if my friend tells me something, they say it's confidential or it's private. How do I step outside of that box and actually go get help for the person and not feel badly about it? But we have to get past that, just like we do in threat assessments. See something, say something. We know that, you know, many posts on social media, which is where everything happens, uh, it's generally a student who's reporting something back to their parents that they saw on social media, to a friend or an administrator or somebody at the college. Um, but And they feel okay in doing that because the, I think, again, in the last 10 years, our modality has changed in terms of seeing something and then actually saying something. Well, that's kind of a nice transition in a way to um, you were explaining your work with this, um, the national 988 number. You were, um, I'm just going to use these words, essential in, in rolling out those efforts um, in the state of Connecticut. and. Um, We'd love to hear kind of your thoughts on the importance of that. I know um, that, that there's been, a, I love that it's permeating. I feel like yeah. I see it everywhere, as I was sharing with you before we started. Heard it on NPR this morning, um, pulling up to our daughter's high school. So, yep. Um, I'm just reading real quick. I'm reading the veterans yeah. question here. Um, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, your risk assessment for veterans. I'd like to hold that question and get back to it. Yeah, that's a great question, though. Thanks, Thanks so uh, Marshall. Um, 988, uh, my role, uh, it, it was Connecticut-based. I mean, this was a national effort um, last year. The federal government mandated 988 be effective and working, keyword effective, and working in every state by last July. Um, so, uh my work, my seminal work was in, in orchestrating a lot of the foundational work that you had to do to roll it out in the state, working with uh, the United Way, for example, who uh, is our 211 call center here in Connecticut, uh, working with um, uh, police dispatch, 911 operators, uh, logistics, how calls come in, how they're switched over, who gets what call, um, who can refer to whom and when. And one of the key features here is if uh, you call, you can never reach, uh, if you call 988 and you need 911, you'll get it. So there's there's no wrong door with 988. Oh. That becomes an important feature of what this is to be. So it was in the, the construction of it for each state was, was difficult. So whoever did it in your state, if you ever meet anybody, thank them because they we had like a year and a half 
to get prepared and then switch on 988. And you can see, as uh, Meg said, you'll see it on TV after major news stories. If you're having an issue or there's any problems, you can call 988. Here's the big difference. If you've not heard of it, you're hearing of it now. But you can use this number for mental health and suicide needs. We had 1-800-SUICIDE, which did not go away. It's still there. If you call it, you'll get any answer. Uh, they, didn't, they don't want to shut that off, and they I don't know if they ever will. Uh, the idea is to have people call the three-digit number. Uh, but it's it's a it's a wider based call center in terms of uh, dealing with people who might be suicidal or have uh, mental health issues. So the training uh, for all nine aided operators is different than suicide training. They have that as well, suicide intervention. But they have other training as well. So it's a great resource. Don't fail to use it. Don't fail to use it when you're training faculty, staff, whomever on campus. Uh, if they have a, a situation and they need to use this number, have them use it, as well as making your contacts on campus, which would be important. Um, so that's support in terms of mental health, suicide. Um, if you have a substance abuse issue, I'm, they'll entertain that as well. And remember, when you're calling this number locally, they have resources that uh, they can refer you to in the area. And if they need to get 911 involved, that'll happen as well. So um, we know that the suicide hotline over the years, that uh, people calling into these kinds of helplines, if you will, um, once they call in, there's, there's an advantage or an outcome of people feeling maybe less depressed, uh, at least heard, maybe less suicidal. Um, and being helped in some way uh, or another. So it's a really, I, it's a really good transition and it's something that we certainly wanna be um, uh, very, very aware of. Um, 988 is accessible uh, by call, text, chat. It, it's on a lot of social media forums. The rollout's been good. So students and using all of their social media vi uh, vehicles, uh, great there. Um, so, uh, I was happy to have the opportunity to write some of the groundwork for it. And all the hard work was completed by the other agencies. I, I mentioned like um, uh, Department of Mental Health Addiction Services, um, uh, the, the United Way, uh, Department of Children and Families, all of them in Connecticut were heavily involved and did a lot of the heavy lifting. I did a lot of the early writing on it, but great number, use it. If you have questions about it, ask them. But make sure that that's at least known on your campus. In um, in a, a addition to, if you have this published on your website or in any literature that goes out, you know, you can call counseling for help. You can call the health center. You can call the dean's office. You can call 988. So yeah. make it part of the normal kind of resource that you would have. Great advice to just incorporate it again. And, and you know, as we're preparing to bring new students onto campus this summer for the kickoff for the fall. What a, a great time to kind of refresh and make sure we've got all of that in our literature. Um, I want to jump to Marshall's question because it kind of ties in. We only have 10 minutes, Dave. The time always goes by way too fast, um, but it ties nicely into kind of our last question here. So Marshall's question is he works with veterans um, and, and that often risk assessment for the general population uh, might not fit specifically for combat veterans and asking if there's any good risk assessment um, guide for veterans. And Marshall, thank you for your work with that population. Yeah, thank you for the, for the work. And thank you to anybody in, in the call that, that has served. Um, 
you know, I don't have something that I can give you directly, Marshall, but I would tell you that the uh, uh, the, the Department of Veterans Affairs, I know here in Connecticut, we have a local uh, uh, website for them to connect, but nationally, just search it and you'll see a lot of good stuff there. And that's written by the people that work directly with the population that's highly affected, most especially by suicide. Uh, in the last 10, 15 years, they've come a long way in uh, providing support, but we still know that I don't, the number's quite high as to how many people die by suicide that are either active or inactive in the military. So it's, it you know, and we have these subsets, veterans being one of them, the LBGTQ population, particularly uh, transgender uh, students. We know that the risk factors are higher in these populations. There you go, 24%. So thank you. Uh, that it, That's incredibly, one's too high. 24% is incredibly high. Um, so we're always wanting to make sure we're doing uh, a good job in talking to veterans, particularly combat veterans, and saying, doing uh, the right things uh, and dealing with whatever their issues are, even including the frustration with working with the VA, perhaps, and not getting enough uh, financial assistance, medication, uh, doctor's appointments, um, whatever that might be, because it's a high-risk population. But check the website out. And actually, you, you've urged, uh, you prompted me into uh to taking a look to see um, if there's anything more specific. And I do have a contact who's a veteran um, 20 years in uh, that I work with at the Red Cross now, and she's doing a lot of veteran outreach with the Red Cross. So I'm gonna check with her to see what, what's out there as well. Thanks for raising the question. Yeah, excellent question. And Dave, thanks for being amenable to, to finding those resources, because that's such a as somebody who's certified veterans benefits in a, 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 a my career, it's an important population that we work with and serve. Totally. So we have about eight minutes left, um, okay. you know, and, and I've shared that. And, and so feel free, um, listening audience, please put a, a question in our chat. We'll try to weave those in. But, you know, we really are an audience made up of faculty and staff who work with students. And so I guess if you could offer us or leave us maybe with just kind of one piece of advice or just kind of one recommendation um, regarding supporting our students' mental health, what would it be? Yeah. You know, when you sent me that question, I'm like, there's so many words. No, That's all right. You got eight. You have seven minutes now. <laughs> so I put them all in a hat and I picked one out. <laughs> it's actually an exercise I use with the graduate students is I, I, I force them to, to take their 10 top things that they want all the time and need to have all the time and pick one. And that's the one you got to live with. And mm. you should see when they pick it out. And it's called hope in a hat. It's a hope in a hat exercise. And they pick that out. And people get ecstatic that they pick the right one and they get dejected that they, <laughs> that's not really the one I wanted to pick. So then that one wasn't so important now, was it? Right. <laughs> but um, yeah, so hoping to hat. So, you know, the word I came up with is listen, you know, and it's broad sweeping, clearly. It's all about listening. And and I, I don't know, I'm old, I'm a little bit older uh in, in generationally, but but it's about listening. And I think we lost the art of listening. And, you know, clinicians do it, people that are in the role to listen, maybe do it all the time. But across across the gambit, you know, do we really listen and do we listen well? So it's about listening. And there's a whole bunch, just make a note. You can even go to your wellness or your counseling center. There's a whole bunch of training on listening skill set, really, uh, that you can learn if you're not a good listener and you have to become a good listener. 
So if you're a good listener and you're listening to what students, faculty, and staff are saying in conversation, particularly around this subject matter, which is mental health and mental health needs, and they're they're kind of talking about not coping well, not doing well, feeling a little bit down. I would give you this analogy: if you had uh, all of the Winnie Pooh, Winnie the Pooh characters in front of you, and uh, Eeyore is there at the party, you're going to pick Eeyore out as being the person who's bummed out and depressed, right? So who's listening to Eeyore? Um, uh, who's kind of got this dysthymia and this depression that's ongoing, but lives with it because he has good support in his friends. Right. And that's what we become as fellow human beings. We become that person or, or that maybe that anchor that someone can lean on. So it's about listening. Uh, then it's about caring about what you just heard, really. So that would, would be the second word I would toss into the hat. It's about caring. Um, and then it's about taking, and this is important for all of us because it's, it's not easily done. It's about taking some time to pay attention. You know, how many times, or think about this, and I have a, a specific point in my life in 1970, I think four, where somebody, uh, I was communicating something to a, a college administrator and um, they they leaned over with their foot and they shut their door, it wasn't a counselor, it was an administrator. And then somebody knocked on the door and they just said, go away, I'm busy. And that meant to me that I was, I was, they were tuned in to me. That was critical because they were listening and I was the focus of whatever meeting that wasn't going to happen for that person or whatever the, the knock on the door was about. That was critical. That stuck right. with me. So just remember that uh, that people will feel that when you give them that time and attention. Um, more broadly, be not judgmental. I mean, we try to do that as much as we can in life, but we all have likes and dislikes and that can kind of leak into how we do that having patience. And then uh, another thing I, I would uh, I would say just generally would be the last comment and we can go from there is, you know, we have all walks of life that come into our lives. So just be accepting of what that person is bringing into us, um, whatever situation that they, they may be experiencing. That's critical because it's different for everybody. Um, if you can't do that, my last comment here would be this even goes back to to suicide training and prevention if you can't do something get somebody who can mm -hmm. here's why and and i put it this way to faculty members and i'll give you a quick i got a couple of minutes to give you a really quick story when i was a younger <laughs> clinician on the college campus faculty would call me and say hey dave i've got uh, meg in my office i just told her she's not going to be in a nursing program uh she's just walking out now she says something about killing herself you got this not really. I don't know. I don't know, Meg. I don't have it. You got to stay on the phone. We have to kind of pursue this. But it's about accepting responsibility to do something. And what I tell people is like, if this were your son, daughter, friend, significant other, um, would you want somebody to do uh, something for them? And the answer is always yes. So if the person is struggling, do something. If you can't get somebody like maybe if Marshall works in Veterans Affairs, Maybe call Marshall and say, hey, Dave just left the, left the office. I know he's a vet. He seemed to be struggling. Connect with him. You know, do something. So that would be that would be my listen word that took four minutes. <laughs> no, I think that's such a, an important. That's really been this theme that is woven through so many of our conversations in our podcast in the last year is the importance of listening. And I, 
I'm really struck by thinking about what would our what would our campuses feel like if we all went through some sort of listening training, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to, I think the importance of you know having some sort of preparation regarding you know mental health nine one one, you know being a first responder or mm-hmm. um, suicide prevention training. But if we all had that, I think that that could have a gigantic ripple effect across. across I, I would agree. And uh, and for those of you that do have suicide prevention training on your campus, if it's not built into that, you know, you could do your, your suicide prevention, like QPR, you do your 26 slides and you do your hour. But when I had RAs or other student leaders, I would we would add an extra hour or two into a half day training and we'd spend an hour on listening skills and how people absorb things and then how they kind of get them back out and how they um, talk about them. So I think you're absolutely right, Meg. That's critical. Yeah. Well, Dave, I, we've we've come to, to 1245. It always goes yeah. by far too fast. Um, I just want to thank you so much for all that you shared with us today and the important work that you're doing. Um, I know a lot of us are just really worried about our students. Um, and um, I feel that as a, as a professional, I feel that as a parent. Um, and I, I think your thoughts as you wrapped up that if it's not something we can do, making sure we know the someone who can do that. Um, and, and a lot of my colleagues have said in, in this last year, I look at all the students and I think about them as my own kid and what would I want um, for them in that situation. And I, I think those are uh, a wise, wise words that you're leaving us with. So Dave, thank you for spending time with us on a Friday. My pleasure. And everybody, thanks for listening in. Um, I hope you got something out of it. You probably knew a lot of this. Maybe you'll work on some of it now. If you haven't, that, that would be terrific. So thank you for listening. So to wrap up our Friday Five Live, please, um, there will be a survey that pops up as you wrap up today. Please let us know. That helps inform um, our conversations moving forward. Um, Next month, um, I am really excited to have a conversation with LT Miles, um, who is going to talk with us about student stopout and what we can do to prevent student stopout. So that, again, we weave in that conversation of mental health there um, as well. So Dave, thanks so much for your time today. Everyone have a great weekend. I hope there's time for rest and renewal and happy Mother's Day to those who are mothering folks. Thank you so much. Friday Five Live is brought to you by Innovative Educators. Innovative Educators offers six online services for your onboarding support and training needs. Visit us at innovativeeducators.org to see how we can support your student success initiatives.